the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Those are verses 6 and 7 of Exodus 34, which are the passages that we're going to be considering for the next two weeks. So it's a very short thing. This is faith-seeking understanding, by the way, and I'm your host, John Green. Uh, Thanks for being with me today. So, So today we're going to begin with the first of the 13 attributes. And, and what is that attribute? It's his name, Yahweh. So the first two words of this declaration are Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord. And so in that, Jewish people see two different kinds of mercy in those two declarations. The Lord, the Lord. I'm the Lord who was from the very beginning, and I am the one who will be through the end. And so there's a declaration there of before time began and then until the end of time and into the eschaton, into the age to come. And so he is the Lord of both those things. And then the fact that he declares further that he is merciful and gracious and all the other things that are that he makes declaration of here um, just are further information about what it means. And so the first attribute that they see in this is is that there is before sin even happens there's mercy and that that begs multiple questions right i mean and really and truly what it tells us is something about the foundational principles of the world and they they get it exactly right i mean it, it would be impossible for me to even remotely argue with that Scripture is very clear again and again and again that there were things that pre-existed the creation of the world. God, for one. <laughs> and since we know that, that God is one, but he is three persons in one, then, then we know that Jesus and the Holy Spirit were there as well. So we know these things, right? So we're very clear about these truths and these realities. And so because we know that, then we can surmise some other things. And one of the things that we can surmise is what is the foundational principle of the world? And the foundational principles of the world come down to two different things. And they're both aspects of God. And that is justice and mercy. And are those two things opposed to one another? Well, let's let's do a thought experiment and see whether they are or not. So if somebody sins against you, does something horrible, ruins your reputation, say, uh, or at least damages it at some level, or costs you money, you know, financially, they, they somehow cheat you out of money and all that kind of stuff. So what is, what is it you want in that situation? You want justice, don't you? That's exactly what you want. You want justice. Now, let's flip it the other way around. You accidentally do something because you would never do anything intentional to hurt anybody else. Uh, neither would I. Um, never in my life Uh, (laughs) obviously not true Um, so let's say one of we do something to in to hurt someone else or cause harm to someone else we might have a great excuse for what happened wasn't our fault we didn't intend for this to happen I, i was just messing around whatever what do we want what do we want so we know that if if you do something to me that harms me i want justice I do something that harms you in some way. What do I want? Do I want justice? Not nearly as much as I want mercy. (laughs) Those two things 
stand separate from one another. And the reality is, if the world were created strictly on justice, these two things have to be held in tension, by the way. I'm not suggesting that, that it's either or. They have to be held in tension. Because we got to hold up the holiness of God with the mercy of God at the same time. And his holiness demands justice, which would mean that, well, nobody lives. And, and that's exactly what it would look like. I mean, Adam and Eve, that would have been the end of it. The, the great experiment would have ended right there with Adam and Eve, right? Okay, let's say that, that their sins weren't all that bad, maybe. Maybe the sin of eating the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil wasn't all that bad. So, so let's say, okay, they can get away with the punishment. But then what happens in the next generation? Murder. Murder. It's an abomination, right? I mean, you have destroyed the image of God in the way that Jews see it is. You didn't just dest- he didn't just kill his brother. He killed he was a mass murderer because he killed everybody who would have come from Abel. You see what I'm saying? That that they see that he killed an entire line of people that can't be replaced. And so he actually is a mass murderer. But it's the same principle on which Abraham can accept that Isaac exists, therefore he will have descendants like as countless as the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky on that same principle. So mercy, again, justice would have said, you know, because he says, God says, your brother's blood cries out for vengeance. It cries out for what? Justice. Did Abel get justice? Well, not in any strict sense of the word, he certainly didn't. But again, world would have ended. Same deal happens with Noah. I mean, right after they come out of the ark, what happens? Noah plants a vineyard, makes some wine, gets drunk, passes out. One of his sons does something untowards. I, I'm not going to say what I think that is. I, I do believe that I know what what happens there. He, when he well, in fact, what it says is he uncovers his father's nakedness. Well, look at. Leviticus. Look at Leviticus 18 and 19 and see what it says about uncovering the nakedness of the father. That's the mother. So what did he do? What did the son do? Did he actually uncover Noah's nakedness or does this something to do with his mother? I mean, there's this, it, it, if you look at the, the linguistics there, Leviticus 18 19 tells you exactly what happened here. It didn't have anything to do with what he did to Noah. It had to do with what he did to Noah's wife, his mother. So at any rate, but it could have ended there. There could have been no Canaan for Noah to curse, the grandson. And there certainly wouldn't have been Canaanites for the next several hundred years. But no, the, the center of the Canaanites had not yet filled the land. And again and again and again and on and on and on it goes. I mean, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's as simple as that. And sin deserves death. So we will all experience death. But for some of us, it will be in order to rise to life eternal, and to others, it will be to, well, go somewhere else. So the, the, there's two principles on which the earth is founded. First, it's on justice, because it's the holiness of God that brings everything into creation. But it, that holiness, that justice, has to be tempered by mercy for the world to exist. That's just the honest truth. There, there are, um, the, Revelation 13 for instance, gives us the principle on which creation happened. It says, also it was allowed, it, the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation, the same group of people we see over in uh, Revelation 7. 
<coughs> Revelation 5 and 7 both. And every he was given authority over all those on the earth, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So that book, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, was written before the foundation of the world, which means that the lamb who was slain was slain before the foundation of the world. So God already knew. He already mapped it out, plotted it out, knew when he would come in time, but it was all there from the beginning. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your hope and your faith are in God. So we know that the principle on which the earth was founded and on which God created mankind is that principle of mercy. So it was there before anything. The, the first expression of it comes to us, it, it, you'd think I would say in Genesis 3, but I don't think that. I think it was actually in Genesis 2 with the creation of the woman. It's a great mercy of God to allow Adam to see what was missing in his life, to see that he was alone and it was not good for him to be alone. And it was a great mercy for God to allow him to see that. And sometimes in our own lives, that's exactly the truth. Sometimes the most important, merciful thing God does to us is allow us to see what's missing and then fill that thing that's missing. But, but sometimes he's got to strip us down and, and make us bare and bereft before he can ever fill that need because we need to see it for what it is exactly. Because we can name it a million things without realizing what, what the real thing is. We can try, because we try and fill our lives with all these other things, right? And, and we make mistakes when we do that. And so what we're really missing is what God needs to show us, and it's a mercy that he ever shows us, because then we can be truly thankful for it when he gives it to us. That's the reason Adam reacts the way he does, because he realized what was missing in his life. He realized that it was not good to be alone. And that was a crushing thing when he realized that he was the only thing on earth who was alone, and then God created the woman. He could be now truly thankful for the woman in a way that he couldn't have if she had always existed. So there's a great mercy of God right there. It's also a mercy that God gave them protection and dominion over the earth. Because otherwise, I mean, we wouldn't have lasted two minutes in the wild, right? I mean, being feral is not really a good look for humans. We don't do that that well. We are vulnerable. We're vulnerable to all kinds of different things in the world, but there was a mercy that was given to us in that. And so we see mercy again and again and again as the principle on which the earth was founded. It's, just, it's the truth, because there's no way that humankind could have existed. It's funny that the Jews have a thing in the Gomorrah. Um, there's a, an idea about what happens when God decides to create, because he said, let us make man in our own image. Well, who is the us? So here, here's the story that they come up with. When the Holy One, blessed he be he, came to create man, he created a group of ministering angels and asked them, do you agree that we should make man in our image? They replied, sovereign of the universe, what will be his deeds? And God showed them the history of mankind, which he already knew before he created. The angels replied, what is man that you're mindful of him? That's Psalm 8. Let man not be created. 
God destroyed the angels. He created a second group. Did you hear that? He created a second group. And then asked them the same question, and they gave the same answer. God destroyed them. He created a third group of angels, and they replied, Sovereign of the universe, the first and second group of angels told you not to create man, and it didn't avail them. You didn't listen. What then can we say but this? The universe is yours. Do with it as you wish. And God created man. But when it came to the generation of the flood and then to the generation of those who built the Tower of Babel, the angels said to God, were not the first angels right? See how great is the corruption of mankind. And God replied, this is Isaiah 46, 4, even to old age, I will not change, and even to gray hair, I will still be patient. In other words, God knew what was going to be the, the history of mankind, showed that to a group of angels that he created, two groups, and said, what do you think I should do? And they said, no, holy moly, they're going to destroy your good creation. Don't do that. And he destroyed them. And then that third group says, you know, hey, we're not as dumb as the second group because they knew what the first group said. And they said it too. We're not that dumb. What we're saying is it belongs to you. You do what you want with it. Well, that hints at the truth. That hints at the truth of that the world is founded on mercy. Because God knew. He knew all this stuff. But he also had a plan. He loved the creation of man in his image so much that he had a plan for the redemption of man even before he created the world. So even though he knew that it was going to be completely and utterly destroyed by man, God created the world. I don't think I would have done that. I mean, I honestly don't. If if we made a cost-benefit calculation and sat down with God, if I was you know, working as a finance guy, which I used to be, if, if I did a cost-benefit calculation and said, here's what's going to happen, you know, you already know they're going to ruin everything. They're going to wreck it. They're going to rape the planet. They're going to have enmity with one another. There's going to be wars all the time. There's always going to be this horrible stuff going on. And no, no, you would never create humankind. Not the way God did. You mean, you'd have created it in a different way, right? You mean, you'd have said, you don't have any free choice. You're going to be automatons. You're only going to do what I determine you will do. You wouldn't, you definitely wouldn't give them free will. And so he did. He created them that way because he created them in his image. So they had many of the characteristics that he does. They have the freedom that he had. They have the freedom to create. They have the freedom to choose. And he knew that it was going to be abused and it was going to go south in a big hurry. And it was only going to go further and further and further and further south over time. But he had a plan to send his son to change all that. So mercy is the foundation. If if there's no mercy in the world, then the world doesn't exist. It's as simple as that. So mercy came before sin. So that first divine attribute Yahweh, I am who I am. I I will be who I will be. But that is the first attribute. And we know that it's the first attribute because he chose to create. The fact that he chose to create knowing everything that he knew tells us that mercy was there before anything ever happened. And so it's an important thing for us to get that. It's an important thing for us to, to thank him for that mercy on which the earth is founded, the same mercy on which our lives are founded. 
And it goes again and again and again. But what does it mean? And, and what does that mean for us? What are we supposed to do with that? Well, we're supposed to thank him for that. We're supposed to praise him for that. And the way that they see, the, the Jewish people see the system operates with, with respect to these divine attributes, what it says is that the covenant is established on these principles. These, these 13 attributes are the basis of the covenant. There's no way it can exist any other way because they're going to break the covenant. You're going to break the covenant. I'm going to break the covenant. So we need mercy. We need a way of reconciling after we've broken the covenant. He'll be faithful. We won't. We will fail. So the way they understand it in Judaism is this way. So they say that it doesn't mean that if I stand and recite the 13 attributes, or if we as a congregation recite the 13 attributes, that God then is bound by my words. This is not a word-faith movement. You know, that's nonsense. I do not bind God by my words. Nope, period, end of sentence. Not happening. So at any rate, the, the connection between the attributes and their manifestation is different and it's deeper, and it's this. So by calling on God's name, which is the first thing, the first person that we know that did that is Abraham. And then we see Isaac doing that. We see Jacob doing that. They're calling on the name of the Lord wherever they are, and they build altars wherever they are, particularly if God shows up like he did with Jacob and Jacob's ladder, and he sees the angels ascending and descending. And he says, surely God lives here, right? So he calls it Bethel, the house of God, and he makes a standing stone, makes a monument there to commemorate that spot. So he knows that the grace of God has gone before him and brought him to this place. And he also now says, all right, I'll make a deal that if you'll get me back here safely, then I'll worship you here and I'll give you a tenth of everything I've got. I have no idea how he intended to do that. How do you give God 10% of something in that time when there's no priest, there's no whatever, no church, no whatever. So at any rate, he made the deal. He saw there that God had gone before him and met him in that place. He's in the wilderness. And we know that because what does he do? Well, he, there's no place for him to sleep, so he takes a rock and decides, I'm going to lie down here, and that's going to be my, my pillow, and it becomes also the stone of remembrance that he creates there. And so he knows that God has gone before him in the same way that Abraham knows, because God says, I'm taking you to a place that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to give you that place. And so what does he do? He builds an altar, and he calls on the name of the Lord. And so when they call upon the name of the Lord, the purpose, the goal of calling on the name of the Lord in this way, the names of compassion, these divine attributes, results in their manifestation in the world. And, and what it says is that, it, that the, the declare, declaration of these increases the presence of the attributes themselves in the world. The Almighty appears to the same degree to which man calls upon his name. That's the way they describe it. And, and you know what? I believe that's exactly right. Because I believe we do bring things into existence. We speak those things into existence. When we call upon the name of the Lord, when we proclaim upon the name of the Lord— it first begins in us. The work of God, the manifestation of kindness, the manifestation of steadfast loving kindness, the manifestation of mercy first comes in us because it begins with thankfulness for the mercy that we have received, and then it better play itself out in us becoming merciful. We, we know 
that we have a responsibility as image bearers of God to bring these attributes into the world. It's part of the image bearing to bear this part of the image, to be merciful. And Jesus says exactly that in Luke as he approaches the end of the... Um, the, the Beati- not the Beatitudes, but the Sermon on the Mount, when he gets to that, he says, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Hmm. And then he goes on and on and on with this. He, he tells the story about the, the master who was owed a huge amount of money by one of his servants, and he, and he forgives him that because of his pleading. And then that servant, who has been just been forgiven, goes out and, and harasses a fellow servant who owes him a tiny fraction of what was owed, what he owed to his master. He puts him in prison and, and impoverishes his family. The master summons him and says to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And the way Jesus sums up that parable is this, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. It's the principle of our fellowship is is that we are merciful people. And when our brother sins against us, Jesus said seven times, Peter, you think seven times is generous to forgive somebody? I'm telling you, 70 times seven. That's the kind of mercy because that's the kind of mercy we need. <laughs> if God just forgave me seven times, I would have been dead a long, long time ago. No, the principle of our fellowship in him, with him, is mercy. Then the fellowship we have with one another, image bearers, mercy. That's the reason. Jesus says, love your enemies. That is the predicate for mercy that way that one who considers himself your enemy today or herself whichever way later if you've loved them instead of treating them like an enemy you've laid the predicate for them to say i know there's mercy there it was already there and now i can go and i can be reconciled with that person because that person loved me instead of making me their enemy it's the same principle of the cross god says i'm not your enemy I'm not your enemy. I sent my son that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. I didn't send him into the world to judge the world, but through him, the world might be saved. It's the same principle that attracts us to Jesus that ought to be in us, that other people, brothers and sisters, or those outside, know that person doesn't base their life strictly on justice. Doesn't mean we don't want justice, but they're not basing their life on justice. I know that mercy is available. I hear Jesus crying out to the Lord from the cross to the Father. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then I see Stephen doing the same thing as he is stoned to death. And I'm humbled beyond belief because I know that I'm not that man. But I know that I'm supposed to be. That's what it means to have mercy before sin.